Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. All of us look forward to something. Starts at a very young age. This little kid looks forward to his father coming home so he can play with him or her. Students look forward to summer vacation so they don't have to do homework or take tests anymore. Perhaps the classic would be a bride looking forward to her wedding. And then there are, of course, middle-aged people who are looking forward toward retirement. Looking forward into the future, as I mentioned, as we've been going through Second Peter, should affect the present. Uh, let's take, for example, that bride looking forward to a wedding. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on before the wedding gets here that she is occupied with. Uh, she's busy preparing for that event in the present, though it's still way off in the future. She has to secure a church decorate the church. She has to, you know, plan the reception, figure out who she's going to have as a photographer. There's flowers. Uh, and then, of course, there's the dress. How could you forget that? That's high on the list. But the point is, that's in the future, but she's now in the present preparing for that which is coming soon. Whole books have been written on how to do that. And speaking of that, there's a book written to tell us how to prepare for the future. It's called The Bible. If you look at the Bible through spiritual binoculars, you will see the second coming of Jesus Christ, and beyond that, the destruction of the earth and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth in which dwells righteousness. Now that's what Peter does in his second epistle, the third chapter, and he looks forward to that and then immediately talks about how that should affect us in the present. So, to state it all very simply, the future should affect the present. Well, if that's the case, spiritually speaking, how? How is that done? Well, I invite your attention back to the third chapter of 2 Peter, and let's let him tell us. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him in his writing to you, has also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things, in which some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. Now, this passage begins with the little word, therefore. 
which immediately throws you back into what he has said just prior to this. So look at verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So clearly, verse 14 is the conclusion of at least verse 13. So the point is, in the great future, new heavens and new earth, that's a long way off, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, therefore, he says, you should do something in the present. Now, I say it appears that it applies at least to verse 13, uh, it could go beyond that. It could apply as far back as verse 11, and some take it as far back as the first three verses of the chapter. One of the things that's interesting is that he says in verse 14, and be found in him. Now, that is a clear reference to the second coming of Christ, that when he comes, we be found in the kind of state he's describing here. So again, it's looking in the future, including at least the second coming, and beyond that to the new heavens and the new earth, and then he says that should affect what we do in the present. So the idea is this. God is going to fulfill his promise that Christ will return and there will be new heavens and a new earth. And therefore... And that's what he has to say in this passage, therefore. So what he says is, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent. Be diligent. So, the future affects the present. How? Spiritually. Be diligent. That's the first thing he has to say. The word diligent here has appeared twice before in this epistle. Matter of fact, this is the same word that appears in chapter 1, verse 5, where he said, be diligent to add to your faith virtue, to your virtue self-control, and he lists virtues that we should be developing. So now he comes back to that at the end. He starts with it and he ends with it. Be diligent. The word means be hasty, be in a hurry, be zealous, be eager, make every effort. That's really the grasp of the idea of this word. Grab every opportunity, put forth every effort, be diligent. All right? Don't be indifferent, don't be idle, be industrious concerning your spiritual life. Work at it. So that when he comes, he finds you how? Well, look at verse 14 again. That be diligent so that when he comes, he finds you in peace and without spot and blameless. Wow. So here's what he's saying. These are the areas that you ought to be diligent in. Now in chapter 1, he gave us seven virtues to be diligent to develop. In this passage, he's giving you three additional things you should think about. And the first is that when he comes, you be in peace. 
Now we need to talk about that. This is really important. I can't think of anything more practical than this. What does he mean? Well, in the Bible, there are two kinds of peace. There is the peace uh, with God, and there's the peace of God. The peace with God happens when you understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for your sins and arose from the dead, and you trust him for eternal life. The Bible says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So when you trust Christ, you have peace with God. That's Romans 5.1, by the way. So that I assume you have that. I think what Peter's talking about here is not that. It's not peace with God. He's talking to believers. He called them beloved. So he's assuming you got that. He's talking about peace of God. Now, what does that look like? And how do you get it? So the point is this. Do you have peace? Go to bed at night and go to sleep, or do you fret? Do you worry? This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Is there tranquility in your soul, or are you constantly fretting and worrying about stuff? Now, I don't know about you, but I much prefer the peace. Right? How do you get it? I'm going to give you two verses. If you master these two verses, you'll master the subject of peace. You ready? One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New Testament. Write these down in your brain. Tattoo them just inside your forehead. You need to know these two verses. The first is Isaiah 26, 3. Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26, 3. God is going to keep you in peace whose mind is stayed on him because if your mind is stayed on him, that will lead you to trusting. And that's where the peace is. Let me give you a New Testament verse. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Everybody ought to know these verses by heart. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing, but just commit it all to the Lord, because your mind is stayed on him and you're trusting him. All right. The point Peter is making is, you should be diligent to be in peace. And what I've just done is tell you how to be in peace. And you're in peace by, let your mind be stayed on him, let your requests be made known, and trusting. That's putting those three verses together. Got it? But look at the text again. It says, and be without spot and blameless. Wow. Uh, I don't need it. Uh, my wife is going to bring me a 
Uh, I, matter of fact, the light coming through that window is shining on my Bible, and I can... <laughs> but thank you, sweetheart. All right, he says, be without spot and be blameless. Matter of fact, Paul says that. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. So, the Lord's going to do that. That's, P that's Paul. And then he turns around and Peter says, but you be diligent to do that. In other words, this is a case where we cooperate with the Lord. We're diligent to do it, and the Lord does it. So it is not a case of either or, it's both and. The point I'm trying to make is we should be diligent because of what's coming in the future. Got it? If you just remember, be diligent in the fact that you were cold, we got it. All right. Once there was a little girl. It was the daughter of a pastor. And she heard him say one day something about, we are members of the church militant. You ever heard that term? Mm -hmm. Church militant is used by theologians to talk about the church on earth versus the church that's in heaven. Those who've trusted the Lord and gone to heaven are in heaven, and those of us still on the earth are still fighting the good fight of faith, and we're called the church militant. In the meantime, this little girl went to visit her aunt, and her aunt took her to Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher asked her what church she attended, not understanding her father was a pastor, and the little girl said, I am a member of the church militant. No, she said, I am the, the member of the church diligent. She misspoke. You ought to be a member of that church. That's the point. We ought to be diligent about what the Lord told us to do. Now, this passage consists of the future and the present. What he says next is this. Look at verse 15. And consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, that's the future part. The present part is be diligent. The future part is you need to remember that the patience of the Lord is salvation. Now, this is a reference to what he has said earlier in the passage, that it is the will of God that all repent, and he is patient until they do. He's giving people time to get saved, and that's the point of verse 15, the long-suffering of our Lord, the patience of not coming back quick, er, is that see people are getting saved. Then he sort of goes off on a tangent, which is really interesting. He says, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now at this point, he is saying, you be diligent in light of the fact that the Lord is delaying his coming till some others get saved. But he brings up, sort of as a footnote, uh, well, that's what Paul said. Now, I want you to look at it very carefully. How does he refer to Paul? Our beloved 
brother, Paul. Now, why is that significant? Well, I'm going to tell you why that's significant. Let me tell you about the relationship between Paul and Peter. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul rebuked Peter publicly. Now, you just don't do that. Uh, there is a personality theory uh, that talks about some people are extroverts and some people are introverts. And, well, Peter was an extrovert. Uh, knowing a little bit about that personality theory and knowing a little bit about Peter, I can assure you Peter was an extrovert. Uh, being one of them, I understand. Uh, he opened his mouth and put his foot in it more than once. That's the giveaway that you're an extrovert. Now, the one thing you don't do is embarrass an extrovert, a people person. That's Peter. You don't embarrass these people. They never get over it. Thirty years prior to this, or better than thirty years prior to this, no less than the Apostle Paul rebuked no less than the Apostle Peter publicly. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 2. And Peter didn't hold a grudge. He said, he's my beloved brother. Is that good? So if you're holding some grudges, you need to remember your beloved brother. That's what Paul did. But look at the rest of it. This is really interesting stuff. He says, um, verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. Did you see that? Yeah. Do we need to turn the lights on so you can see that? <laughs> Peter says all his epistles, and just as they do with other Scripture. So what's he calling Paul's epistles? Scripture. Wow. I get asked a lot, or I have been over the years, how was the Bible put together? When was it put together? And the standard answer is, at a council in 395, the 27 books of the, Old, the New Testament were first put together and officially recognized. Now, way before that, the Jewish books were put together, and Jesus puts his stamp of approval on that portion of the Bible in Luke chapter 24. But the New Testament, they say, wasn't finalized or at least formally recognized until 395. Well, I happen to disagree with that. And part of the reason I disagree with that is that verse, that at this point, and this is in the 60s, first century, Peter was already acknowledging that Paul, all of Paul's epistles was Scripture. Now, uh, there's indication, matter of fact, I did a study of this once. By 110, we have writings outside the New Testament, by 110, Every book of the New Testament, 
with the exception of 2nd and 3rd John, is either quoted or alluded to in a writing outside of the New Testament by 110 A.D. So I think that the 395 is a formal recognition, but they were all underground in the catacombs way before that anyway. They didn't have a chance to have a council meeting and decide. So I think it was decided way before then, and the council just caught up with it. But it's fascinating, whatever you say about that, that Peter calls everything Paul wrote Scripture. Isn't that interesting? Now, what else he says is this. Two other things about Paul. Number one, there are things hard to be understood. Ooh, have you ever read something Paul wrote and had a hard time understanding it? You're in good company. Peter had the same experience. He said, there are things Paul said that are hard to be understood. Now, I've, I've encountered a couple of those things myself. Um, I, I could take a long time to tell you. Most of them I've resolved. Uh, I'm going to tell you one that I wrestle with that I think I have a solution to. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, women are to be silent in the church. In the same epistle, he says, but when they pray or prophesy publicly, they're to put a hat on. What? You just said they, 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 they shouldn't speak, and then you say, but when they do, how do you put that together? I wrestled with that for years. Never. I heard that there was a fellow who had an answer, and I literally drove 100 miles to talk to him uh, one way. Uh, and I think he really helped me understand that passage. And if you want to know, I'll tell you later. See me after the service. In the meantime, was that, was that mean? You want to know? Oh, come on, you don't want to know. Well, all right, if you look very carefully at those passages, the, when they pray or prophesy is in 1 Corinthians 11. And that, uh, the church meeting starts just after that. Where he says women are to keep silent in the churches, he's talking about speaking in tongues in chapter 14, and that's in a church service. So the difference, and Paul was not contradicting himself, uh, he recognizes that women could prophesy no less. It's just that they weren't to speak in tongues in the church. That's how you put it together. And that fellow helped me solve that one. And the rest of them I've struggled through and wrestled with and talked to some other people. I think I've got most of those straightened out. But I have to confess, there are times when Paul is hard to be understood. Now, if that's not bad enough, look at the rest of what he says in verse 16. The untaught and unstable twist what he had to say. So in one case, the, the things that were hard to understand, in the other case, they just twist it. Now, what is that referring to? To their own destruction, he says. Well, Paul himself tells us of a case where they twisted things. In Romans chapter 3, he's preaching salvation is absolutely free, all your sins are forgiven if you simply trust Christ. And some people came along and twisted that by saying, 
Well, if that's the case, let's do evil that good may come. If we just sin a little, God can exercise His grace. So by my doing evil, sinning, good will come, God will forgive me. And Paul says, that's what they're reporting that I'm saying, and they are slandering me. They are twisting the Scripture. Uh, that's one illustration. I think there are many. I think that there are people who practice twisting the Scripture. That particular Greek word, by the way, has a reference to the rack, where they would put somebody on the rack and stretch them. Let there be light. <laughs> All right, so he says that... Um, uh, that, that's what some people do with the Scripture. They twist it. They uh, stretch it. Uh, they pervert it. And he says that's what some are doing. Now, here's the point. You ought not do that. Uh, I, but that's what, you know, they don't like the way it looks, so they got to twist it. they got to change it to make it fit the way they think. Uh, I read once of a fellow that had an office, and in his office he had a picture of the Tower of Pizza. Of Pisa. And uh, you know the Tower of Pisa is crooked. It leans. So every morning he came in, and the cleaning lady would make the picture crooked. And he said, why did you do that? And she said, to make the tower straight. In her mind, she didn't know about the tower in Italy. In her mind, she had to make it fit what she, the tower ought to be straight, so the frame's got to be, that's what people do with the scripture. They, it's got to fit what I think. Now let me explain something real simple. We are to adjust ourselves to the scripture and not adjust the scripture to ourselves. So, some twist the scripture to their destruction. Now, the point I'm making today is really very simple. You know what it is? Did you forget already? We've chased a couple of rabbits here and there. We had a few interruptions and distractions. But the point is this. The future ought to determine the present. In basically three ways in this passage. That when the Lord comes, he finds you living in peace and that you are living in peace and without spot and blameless. It's interesting in chapter 2, those phrases are used with the false teachers. Don't be spotted. Don't be blamed for mishandling the scripture. That I think I get from what he goes on to talk about Peter and Paul and Peter talking about Paul and the way that some pervert what he said. So the point is basically this. This whole context is talking about prophecy. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, in light of what the scripture says about the second coming of Christ, believers are to be diligent, to be peaceful, spotless, and blameless, and just keep believing 
in the delay of the second coming so that people can be saved. Now, let me make two very simple applications. There's already some, be at peace, be spotless, and be blameless. But I think what this is saying is you need to be at peace. Amen? There's no sense for you to worry. Be at peace. The lights will come back on. The heat will return. Just trust the Lord. Did you pray for the lights to come back on? Is that the first thing you thought about? When the lights went out, did you pray? Aha! That's be diligent. Just be at peace. Trust the Lord. The second thing is, if the Lord is delaying his coming for people to be saved, then what does that say to us? We ought to be about the business of presenting the gospel to people, right? That's clearly implied here, that we ought to be telling people about the Lord. That's why he's delaying his coming. So get with it. Now, apart from all those specific applications, the overall point of this passage is the future determines the present. So, I want to I make an issue out of that, and with this I'm going to close. Does the future determine your present behavior? Are you living in light of the future? Are you living for the present? Which is it? Which is it? One or the other. We ought to constantly be living in the present in light of the future, not just living for the present. It's so easy to get caught up in living for the present, living for material things, living for pleasure, going our own way, building our own lifestyle. Well, let me just tell you, one day Jesus is coming. And if he doesn't come back, you're going to him. You know him. So we need to be living in light of that rendezvous. I read something once that puts this rather well. And I'm glad the lights came back on so I could read it. The Lord won't ask you what kind of car you drove. He'll ask you how many people you drove who didn't have transportation. God won't ask you the square footage of your house. He'll ask how many people you welcome into your home. God won't ask about your clothes in your closet. He'll ask how many you help clothe. God won't ask about your social status. He will ask what kind of class you displayed. God won't ask how many material possessions you had. He'll ask if they dictated your life. God won't ask how many, uh, what uh, was your highest salary was. He'll ask if you compromised your character to obtain it. God won't ask how much overtime you worked. He'll ask if your overtime work was for yourself or your family. God won't ask how many promotions you received. He'll ask how you promoted others. God won't ask your job title. He'll ask if your performance on your job was to the best of your ability. God won't ask if you, uh, what you did to help yourself. He'll ask what you did to help others. God won't ask how many friends you had. 
He'll ask how many people to whom you were a friend. God won't ask what you did to protect your, uh, protect your rights. He'll ask what you did to protect the rights of others. God won't ask in what neighborhood you lived, but he'll ask how you treated your neighbors. God won't ask about the color of your skin, but he'll ask about the content of your character. God won't ask about how many times your deeds matched your words, but he'll ask how many times they didn't. God won't ask why it took so long to seek salvation, but he'll lovingly take you to your mansion in heaven and not the gates of hell. The point is, the future, our rendezvous with the Lord, whether by death or his coming, should determine our present. Amen and amen. Father, thank you for giving us a warning. Thank you for telling us what is coming. Lord, thank you for these promises. That if our minds are stayed on you, we can trust you and have peace. That we can let our requests be made known and experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, you are just so good to us. Thank you. Thank you for all of these promises, and now we pray that you would grant us the grace to do what you've told us to do in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.